I don't believe what I'm hearing. Obi, Mom was right. You've changed. I don't want to hear any more about Obi-Wan. The Jedi turned against me. Don't you turn against me. I don't know you anymore. Anakin, you're breaking my heart. You're going down a path I can't follow. Because of Obi-Wan. Because of what you've done. What you plan to do. Stop. Stop now. Come back. I love you. Liar! All right, welcome to Star Wars English class. This is episode one, Anakin Skywalker and the Tragic Hero. I am Julia. And I am Fern. Hello and welcome. So this is our first episode. So we're going to start with a little bit of information about who we are, what this podcast is going to be about, and then get into discussing today's uh, sad boy of the week. <laughs> uh, I can start. You know, okay, I'm awesome. All right. so. I already said my name is Fern, but I'll say it again. Hi, I'm Fern. Um, I am a 12th grade English teacher. I am a retired creative writing major, um, a retired literature minor, and now I teach full time. Um, I'm going to talk a little bit about how I got into Star Wars um, Perfect. because it seems relevant to this it conversation. Is yeah. Um, I grew up sort of Star Wars adjacent. Um, and what I mean by that is that my brother really liked Star Wars. My dad and my uncle really liked Star Wars. And I liked the action figures. <laughs> I liked uh, taking these characters who I did not know a lot about and telling my own stories with them, which I have heard a similar narrative from a lot of people um, and like specifically a lot of people who were uh, like assigned female at birth or raised sure. as a girl um, that their first introduction to Star Wars was sort of writing their own stories within this world um, but when I was 13 I stumbled across one of the books in the Jedi Apprentice series read it because I had nothing else to do that day and it just it sounds melodramatic to say so but it changed my life um, I fell down this rabbit hole of you know, going to the library every week and checking out as many books in this series as I could. And from there, I got into the Clone Wars. And from there, I broadened my interest to sort of all of Star Wars. Um, but I think it was kind of an unorthodox path into this fandom. Um, and I just feel honestly grateful that like, my brother happened to own a copy of this book, and I happened to see it in his room and pick it up that day. My kind of introduction to Star Wars was somewhat similar uh, because I did have an Obi-Wan Phantom Menace like action figure that played with all of my Barbies <laughs> and so it was like it was very fun to kind of like make that happen story-wise and there was a lot of really dramatic story arcs involving Obi-Wan Kenobi and you know all of my Barbies so um, that's you know that's a way to get into it um, so before I guess I move into kind of my experience you mentioned your 12th grade English teacher like, I guess, did you always want to be a teacher or did you kind of just end up doing it? Or like, how did that happen? I did not always want to be a teacher. And actually, my mom is a teacher. She's a first grade teacher. And so people would ask me growing up if I wanted to also be a teacher like my mom was because I would help her out in her classroom a lot. 
Um, and the answer was a resounding no. I, I didn't think I would like teaching. I didn't think I would have the patience for it. Um, and it wasn't until I was in college and taking, um, I think it's often the case that students find one or two professors who they just like attach themselves to. And that was very much the case for me. Uh, and so I sort of attached myself to this literature professor and he ran a summer pre-college program that he needed a TA for. So he hired me as his TA. Um, and I got my first experience teaching and these were high school students who were, um, you know, taking like a pre-college course and I loved it. Oh. It was so much fun. Um, it was the first time where I felt like, yeah, this is work that I could do for the rest of my life and be satisfied. Um, so I ended up, uh, an actually very last minute decision, um, because I, I graduated from college early. Um, and was trying to scramble to figure out what I was going to be doing with right. the rest of my life. Um, but I decided to apply to grad school and get a master's in teaching. And that was a few years back now. And I've sort of been in working in education ever since. Awesome. Yeah. And you have been making Star Wars content now on TikTok for how long have you had your TikTok? About four months four months yeah so I it's crazy like time dilation on TikTok because mm. I didn't like get the app on my phone until December and then I made my first video which was about John Wick it was not about Star Wars um <laughs> at the beginning of January and now I'm sitting here in April and I'm like hey what <laughs> like it's just you know but like you you know talked about getting into Star Wars in the first place like things just kind of happen in really interesting ways but um yes I am Julia I am the other sort of host here uh, uh teacher at Star Wars English uh class I am a uh PhD GTA graduate teaching assistant although that title is always a little bit misleading because I teach all of my own classes uh, myself um but that's just kind of what we're called um I'm doing my PhD in, in literature and uh, my primary sort of areas are Shakespeare and adaptation. So we'll talk a little bit later about sort of specialty and sort of what we'll cover in terms of scope. Um, but I, you know, <laughs> I didn't know that I wanted to be a teacher either growing up. I kind of always wanted to be a doctor. Um, and then I realized you still had to do math um, <laughs> to be a doctor. And I was like, well, I could maybe, you know, power through it, but I wouldn't be having nearly as much fun. And so like Fern had someone in college who was like this amazing Shakespeare professor. And I realized that like, wait, no, I actually really like this. Um, I think a lot of people have that experience in high school where like they think they don't like something and then they get to college and they realize that it's actually something they could be passionate about and do forever. Um, so then I kind of went from there into grad school and more grad school and hopefully will be a professor one day if the um, entire academy doesn't collapse under the weight of itself um, as it currently uh, might be doing. Uh, but so that's that's that in terms of me being an English teacher uh, in quotations because, you know, I don't actually have a degree in teaching, but I do teach. Um, and then Star Wars wise, I kind of mentioned my Obi-Wan Kenobi Barbie. He wasn't a Barbie, but he was playing with them. and. Um, I kind of grew up loving Star Wars. I think Attack of the Clones was the first movie I saw in theaters. I theoretically could have seen Phantom Menace in theaters, but I have no memory of that. 
Um, and I just really was drawn up in the world of it, like not even the specifics of the story, but like the characters and the planets and the creatures and like feeling like this was a massive world that, you know, could be explored um, and really getting very interested in that. And also the Jude Watson Jedi Apprentice books, my library literally had only one of them. And so I just read, I think it was the second book in the series. I just read that one about a hundred times until I got older and, you know, kind of got more interested in like the Clone Wars and, and other things. But, um, you know, the books and things like that are really ways that people get into Star Wars that don't know that everyone thinks about, because there's a lot out there in terms of ways to get into it. Um, but yeah, that's my, that's my background, um, how I ended up teaching English and being a Star Wars uh, fan. And like I mentioned, I've been doing TikTok for like three months now, and here we are doing a podcast which you after like a certain amount of weeks you're contractually obligated to do yeah yeah they don't tell you that when you sign up uh but it's in the fine print so if you do star wars tiktok for enough and you reach a certain amount of followers you just you get a, a letter in the mail that says you must do you must do a podcast now yeah, it's so, kind of threatening <laughs> as well it's like it's, it's very it's assertive. very intense and yeah. we don't know who it's from there's just a sort of shadowy a shadow collective, so to speak, mm-hmm. of of people who want a Star Wars podcast. So we'll get to the bottom of that eventually. One thing we wanted to mention, kind of going into the scope of this of this show, is what we mean by English class and kind of recognizing our limitations and also just the limitations of what it means to sort of teach this material in terms of, you know, we're pretty much working exclusively within what is referred to as the Western canon of literature. And that is pretty, uh, at this point, still very old, still very male, and still very white. And so there have been movements, especially recently, to expand the canon or even reimagine what that means. But as of right now, a lot of what we're going to be discussing, you know, will cover a lot of these more canonical topics. And so recognizing that that is a sort of necessary evil of this material in terms of what we know from our schooling and what we teach in terms of in the classroom and finding places where we can expand that um, as much as possible but I guess recognizing it as a as a limitation um, anything else you want to add in terms of the the western canon for yeah I mean I actually was just having a conversation with one of my students about this about how um, the literary canon sort of is this double-edged sword of like it is limited, uh, its limits are significant in that, as you mentioned, it's extremely white, extremely male, um, and typically pretty old. Um, and yet there can be a sort of usefulness in having this like shared uh, body of work that we refer back to. Um, and I think that's the space we're functioning in right now, mm-hmm. both as teachers and also with this podcast of like, it's useful to have this body of work to refer back to, but we have to acknowledge just how limited that body of work is. Right. And, you know, it, it's, this is the stuff, like when we get into discussing today, Greek tragedy and Shakespeare and all of this stuff, I think it will become pretty clear how influential it was specifically on the topic of the day um, in which, you know, looking over even just sort of our notes of like, wow, Anakin Skywalker really does seem to fit into these tropes or these sort of story beats. 
And that's because it's part of this overall tradition and that can help us understand it, but it can also show the limitations of how these stories get written. So as you can probably guess from the title, it is part English class, part Star Wars uh, discussion. Um, and it'll mostly be Fern and I, Fern and me, I'm very bad at grammar. I'll just say right up front. I don't actually know anything about grammar other than what I use in writing. And if it's not something that comes out of my brain naturally as I write, I can't tell you what it is. So just, I'm, I'm already prepared for that um, in terms of uh, problems that people might have with me personally. Um, we'd love to include guests occasionally in terms of, especially expert <laughs> guests or people who know things more about certain areas. Um, for example, we've talked about the limits of the canon or even just our own limits. Like I said, my areas are Shakespeare and adaptation and that's a lot of stuff, but it's not everything. Um, so I guess, Fern, what would you say as you're like, like you feel like as your bread and butter in terms of this type of stuff? Yeah, definitely American literature and more specifically modern and contemporary American literature. And then like if we want to narrow in even more modern and contemporary American short fiction. Okay, so if you can <laughs> is, just go narrower and narrower, we'll find it. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, exactly. Um, but, you know, I took the the requisite survey courses. I took, you know, Shakespeare courses and the like, but the aforementioned professor I sort of attached myself to was an American lit professor and a Faulkner scholar. So yeah, yeah. so we have our stuff that we know really well. Um, that goes for Star Wars as well. I mean, I think everybody has their thing. I specifically know about one boy who appears in two episodes of The Clone Wars. That's really my area of expertise. So uh, like lots of things, we'll try to get, you know, we'll try to expand and get get information uh, and do research the best we can to kind of cover a bunch of different topics. That's kind of how this is going to roll. We'll start out with uh, exploring the English class topic of the day, and then we'll kind of move into discussing what that means for um, how we're analyzing it or using it as a lens into Star Wars. Um, so for today, that's going to start with what a tragic hero is. That's looked like in kind of two main areas of literature, the Greek tragedy and then later the Renaissance tragedy. So we'll take a little bit of a break. And then when we come back, we will jump into a uh, Greek tragedy. Julia, allow me to whisk you away to Athens in the 5th century BCE. This is what is generally considered the, the height of Greek tragedy or the peak, or as I saw it described in one place, like the most significant moment in Greek tragedy as a genre. And when you talk about a peak or a height, like that indicates some sort of evolution. It sort of begs the question, well, where did this genre come from? The answer is kind of, we don't know. <laughs> um, there are theories. There is the, uh, the Aristotelian hypothesis that Greek tragedy evolved from 
uh, the satyr diathrim, diathrim, I looked up the pronunciation before this, but it's one of those words that I have only ever read, but never heard sure. out loud. Well, um, I don't think you're going to have any ancient Greeks listening. So you're probably I would fine. hope not. Yeah, yeah. That would make me very nervous. <laughs> so these were hymns that were sung to Dionysus, uh, who you may be familiar with from, you know, Greek mythology and the Percy Jackson series, God of Wine, of merriment of theater. Aristotle hypothesized that Greek tragedy and other forms of Greek theater emerged from these hymns. Um, I, as far as I could tell in um, my research, this is still a pretty widely respected theory, though I am not really immersed in like the classics community. Sure. Um, so it is very possible that that is not a theory that is taken very seriously today. Um, and if anyone who is listening to this episode has more information about that, I would love to hear it. Please Absolutely. reach out. So that sort of brings us to the question of what Greek tragedy is, like what are the defining features of this genre? And it's difficult to uh, explore that for a few reasons. Firstly, I think it's always difficult to broadly categorize or define an entire genre without like sacrificing nuance. But also, we're working with limited resources here. So full texts of Greek tragic plays. Um, we only we only have these full surviving texts from three poets: um, from Aeschylus, Sophocles, and Euripides. And among those three poets, we only have really a handful of their works. So that's not necessarily a representative sample. Sure, um, I was just about to say, oh, well those, <laughs> I was just about to say, oh, well, I, I know those three. And then I was like, oh yeah, uh-huh. Yeah. I was like, but those are the most well-known ones. Of course they are, Julia, they're the only ones we have. Wow, good job. Right, and we have fragments from other poets, but not like a whole play. <sighs> so these, I mean, Aeschylus could be just a clown. We have no idea. Exactly. Um, you know, where any any judgment call we make or any um, any type of like categorization that we try to do is based on this limited sample. And it's very as a genre, Greek tragedy was far. I mean, I think it's likely that it was like far more complex sure. than what we know from what we have. Um, what we do have is Aristotle's poetics. Oh, we, Aristotle. We got uh, you know, like a good 20 minutes, I want to say, into the first episode before talking about Aristotle. I imagine we'll be returning to yeah. him a bit. <laughs> Just start start the counter now. Every time I say, oh, Aristotle, and sigh with disappointment, that's number one. Just keep keep it going. He's he's just everywhere. Kind of unavoidable in this yeah. field. Yeah. Um, so poetics is, I mean, I've heard it described as like the first work of literary criticism. Whether or not that is true or like an incredibly sort of Western-centric sure. view of things, I, I don't know. Um, but Poetics is an essay, essentially, that seeks to do a few things. It talks a bit about where um, these different art forms, these different, what, what Aristotle refers to as representations or imitations, where they evolve from. Um, it talks a little bit about uh, what these different art forms like song, dance, um, drama, epic, what they are and what their 
sort of composite parts are. Um, and then it, it seeks to define and categorize them. So what is a tragedy versus what is a comedy versus what is an epic? And then okay. there's sort of this prescriptive bit that's like, and this is what tragedy should be. <laughs> this is sure. how you do tragedy well. So this brings us to a sort of fork in the road of the conversation, a sort of choose your own adventure novel, if you will. And I'm going to leave this up to you, Julia. Would you like okay. me to talk about how, would, I'm going to talk about both of them, but would you like in with how Aristotle defines tragedy in terms of like plot okay. aspects or in terms of character in terms of the character of the tragic hero so let's I'm saying let's start with plot because I feel like character is where we're really gonna well and they're just so you're they're so connected I imagine you've given me a, see this is what happens when I'm given a direct choice I just kind of panic but I say okay let's start let's start with plot and then move into into character I love it so, and I think you're right to say that these things are intertwined. And in both cases, according to Aristotle, the goal is to uh, evoke pity and fear. And from that catharsis, from sure. that, this like uh, release of or sort of expulsion of emotions, or another possible translation, a sort of clarifying or pur purification of emotions. Okay. We're working with translations here, and I don't know ancient Greek, so there is a limit there. Wait, I'm sorry. I, I don't know if I made that clear. Um, this Star Wars podcast requires that uh, everyone speak ancient Greek. So. Oh, well, I, can I supplement it? I did take a year of Latin, so mm -hmm. like, would that... That's fine for now. Okay. But you will okay. have to take some classes and uh, get certification. Yes, I will get right on that immediately. Uh, continued learning summer workshop stuff that we all know and love some professional development yeah yes this 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 star wars podcast will require professional development so aristotle identifies three sort of aspects of plot within greek tragedy reversal recognition and suffering i'm sure you're very familiar with these concepts i am familiar with the concept of suffering correct yes me too um <laughs> Reversal comes from a reversal of fate. So okay. the idea is that we are starting with characters uh, in good fortune and they fall to misfortune. So the reversal must be good fortune to misfortune. It would not be a tragedy if it were the other way around, if okay. a character came from misfortune and sort of rose. Recognition is a moment of realization. This is Oedipus realizing who killed his father and who his mother mm. is right Got it. um and and aristotle actually says like the most impactful tragedy is that wherein like recognition and reversal happen at the same time they oh. are linked um and that that's very satisfying okay uh and of course this leads to suffering this leads to this fall this leads to misfortune um and again, Oedipus is sort of used as the blueprint, both in poetics and also in general, when people talk about Greek tragedy, it's very well known. It's sort of the, the blueprint um, within, I think, like, even contemporary classrooms. Yeah, definitely. Definitely the trilogy that I am most familiar with. So I'll definitely be using it as a sort sure. of cornerstone. Um, and so suffering is 
you know, Oedipus blinding himself and exiling himself and the curse that he had, you know, put upon the the person who killed his father falls sort of onto himself. Oops. Uh-oh. Oh, oh no. So I was just about to say, oh, Eddie, because that's my fun nickname for Oedipus. Oh, I didn't know you were close. Oh, it's okay. So like, I really just, we don't, obviously he's kind of hard to to get into contact with Mm. right now. um, He's taking all this pretty hard. Um, But last time I uh, messaged him on Facebook Messenger, he said he was um, doing okay. So that's good for him. Yeah. You know, it's it's really that kind of resiliency that matters. Yeah, it's important. Yeah, to stay to stay in touch. I don't know what I'm talking about. The idea of Oedipus being on Facebook Messenger is just an idea I didn't need to bring into the world, and I'm sorry that I have. I mean, that's definitely like some high school English teacher at some point has done that as a school yeah, project, absolutely. like make a Facebook profile. I had to make Facebook profiles of every character in The Great Gatsby, so like that is absolutely something that teachers do. I had to do it with Macbeth, except um, my parents didn't let me use Facebook at that time, so I made sure. Tumblr profiles. Wait, play- wait, so your parents didn't let you use Facebook, but you were on Tumblr. Yeah, my parent. the concern was, I actually don't know what the concern was, but I think it had more to do with, like, I was on Facebook, you are yourself. On sure. Tumblr, I could just be like a username and I knew not to give out personal information. That makes sense. Sorry, I get off, tra- I get people off track. This is what I do in the classroom. My students will say like, hey, did you watch whatever episode of whatever? And then like three hours later, they're like, please let us leave. <laughs> Class was supposed to be over two hours ago. That is the risk they take when they bring up interesting things in class. So. What, if they want to distract me and not do their work, that also means potentially they're still stuck there several hours later talking to me. So honestly, same. So let's move to character now. Um, because it's interesting that you mentioned earlier that, that plot and character are connected because I would agree with that. And I think mm-hmm. there are lots of uh, critics who would agree with that. And yet Aristotle privileges action, like plot over character in tragedy. He says the tragedy exists even if you remove the character as a person, right? But it's the events unfolding that are tragic. I don't know how much I agree with that. And there are a lot of, I've, I've read a lot these past two weeks of people who, who disagree with that pretty ardently. Uh-huh. Um, but this is what Aristotle has I to say. I wish people could see my facial expression right now. Because I'm just mostly like, I'm not surprised because it's Aristotle, but like, it gives me the vibes of someone who's like, well, you know, if you put this all in perspective and you're like, my dog died. And he's like, yeah, but like, you know, and you're just like Aristotle. He's like, but you, you know, regardless of like, if it happened to you or anyone else and you're like, no, 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 but it's my dog. And Aristotle's like, whatever, dude. The, the sad thing is that the dog died, not that yeah. your dog died. Not yeah. that your dog. And you're like, Aristotle, please. However, even though he says character is less important than plot, um, he does define the type of character who should who should be the protagonist of a tragedy and this is very much where we get a lot of our like ideas about what a tragic hero is in terms of Greek tragedy all right so this is a character who is good but flawed um and of 
great reputation is the quote. Oh, okay. So we're typically looking at royalty. We are looking at people of high status. Um, The idea is sort of that tragedy belongs to the nobility and comedy belongs to the ordinary folk. And the reason these characters should be good but flawed is that their flaws make them empathetic characters or make us able to empathize with them right we are flawed uh so too should these characters be flawed because they are representations of real people um well not not real people but representations of of human beings right um and it would not be relatable or it would not it would be more difficult for us to empathize with a purely good character um it also would not evoke catharsis to have a purely good character who just falls for no I don't want to say for no reason because we need to get into the problem of the fatal flaw in a moment um but it, it would not be cathartic to see a purely good character fall so it's a that would just of- be that would just be what the kids call big sad exactly exactly no no pity and fear here just big sad um, just sad boy hours, really. Yes, absolutely. Um, it also would not be super satisfying. I mean, it might be satisfying in a different way, but it wouldn't be cathartic to see a clearly villainous character meet his or her downfall, um, because that's not tragedy. That's just a Disney film. Uh, <laughs> that's just that's just what you get. Um, count. Uh, Fro- Claude Frollo. I don't know. I was trying to think of a Disney villain, but actually, now that I'm thinking about it, uh, he is probably one of the more complex uh, characters. So he's a bad uh, Gaston. Gaston. Yes, yes. Not not Frollo. Frollo is like he's got a lot going on there. Gaston uh, getting thrown off a cliff is is not catharsis. It's just justice. Right. <laughs> I love that. We should unpack that in a bit. Yes. <laughs> um, so the. I want to tread so carefully with what I'm about to say. So we have the idea of this tragic hero having, you know, the hamartia, which is often translated as the fatal flaw. A flaw that leads to or results in the tragic hero's downfall. However, I have read a lot these past few weeks from scholars who feel that fatal flaw is a mistranslation Mm -hmm. and that this is not yes the hero should be flawed um for the reasons stated previously but the flaw is not what leads to the downfall what leads to the downfall is a decision or Mm -hmm. perhaps more accurately a mistake and uh. so the idea here is that Hamartia is not a character flaw, it's an action. I find that very compelling. That is very compelling because as we'll get into, I'm sure later, especially in Renaissance and then uh, Anakin, Prophecy Baby Skywalker, um, the idea that you're fated or like predestined to, to have a certain, like the idea that of having a fatal flaw is pretty fatalistic like mm-hmm. there's nothing you can do that you're inherently wrong in a way no matter how noble or good you are and like the idea that it's gonna get you um is really kind of upsetting or it can be kind of upsetting um 
Whereas the idea of making a mistake feels like agency, even if it's like a bad choice. I don't know. I don't know what your thoughts here are are on this in terms of like how this presents like in Oedipus and other Greek tragedies. I'm not familiar, but my mind immediately goes to like agency because that's just, that's where my brain is. Yeah, well, something I definitely want to unpack in a little bit is this idea of of knowledge, the role of knowledge in all of this. Um, The idea that many of these tragic heroes are, and Oedipus, again, sort of being the blueprint, are put into situations in which they are limited by the knowledge or lack Mm. thereof that they have. Um, And so I, I... will be interested to see how we think that does or does not relate to Anakin and his journey. Yes, absolutely. So in general, Greek tragedy deals with these ideas, these questions of morality and fate and free will, as as we were just discussing, agency and knowledge and the limits thereof. Um, Again, I don't want to say that like, all of Greek tragedy is one thing um, or covers you know, one topic because obviously that's um, reductive, but these are questions we see reappear over and over again across this genre. Um, and I mentioned before how you know, Aristotle sort of privileges action or plot above character, um, but I wanted to share two, two quotes that I discovered that sort of uh, complicate this. One from the uh, scholar George Boas, he who wrote, in general, the conflict in Greek tragedy is not between people so much as within individuals. Um, the idea being that perhaps the, the tension of tragedy, of Greek tragedy, is more character-driven um, huh. than Aristotle might say. Um, and then uh, Charles Seagal, who writes, you know, Oedipus specifically is a tragedy, not only of destiny, but also of personal identity. Mm. And that's where I will leave you okay. on our introduction, our crash course, our Got crash it. course on Greek tragedy. I, I love it. Again, like we're kind of trying to get to the, <laughs> get to, you know, get to the heart of the issue. So obviously, but I, that's, that's, there's a lot there that's super fascinating, especially going into now when I'll get into like Renaissance and then obviously our sad boy of the week. Um, yeah. So I think this idea of like, what is, I just am such a meme brain. I'm like, are we human or are we dancers? Um, in terms of like, is the thing that, you know, you mentioned knowledge. I just, again, meme brain. I'm like knowledge. And it's the guy in the garage with the in his books. And that's the only thing I can think of. Stay on track, Julia. Um, but like, is it a flaw or is it a decision? And like, what's the difference between having a fatal flaw that leads you to make the wrong choice and having no choice in the first place? And like the role that knowledge plays in that, because mm-hmm. Seems like in Oedipus's case, like the more he tried, he attempted to run from his fate. It's just what led him to it, which I think a lot of people see Star Wars prophecy that way. We're like on the road to trying to prevent that terrible thing from happening. You're just going to meet your fate on on the way. And I just we could do we could do a whole episode on prophecy, and we probably Mm -hmm. should because there's a lot there beyond just like how it presents in specific genres of tragedy but um like what is your personal take on like where 
you feel like it lands. I mean, even in, in just in the case of Oedipus, like you don't need to be an expert on all Greek tragedy, but I am I'm definitely not. <laughs> um yeah, I I I think the idea of a mistake seems I, I like I, for some reason I'm resistant to using this word, but like more accurate of a translation. Yeah. Um, when you look at Oedipus, when you look at Antigone, right, um, we're really talking about choices, we're mm-hmm. talking about decisions, or like I saw it described somewhere as uh, a half choice that Oedipus is presented with, right, um, and Antigone as well, actually, now that I think about it, and again, like knowledge plays into that, and mm-hmm prophecy plays into that but ultimately it is a decision or a choice that these characters make with the limited knowledge that they have that leads to their suffering that leads to their reversal and in fortune right characters working with incomplete information are often never in a in a good place in terms of making the right choice and it's kind of i don't know if unfair is the right word but like what did you expect to happen um, knowing what the character knows? And, you know, if they had the whole, the whole story, it would be different, but they don't. And so they can only make the best decision available to them. Um, and we can get into it. I would say Anakin Skywalker makes some just legitimately bad decisions and some that are more tragic in that he didn't have the, all of the information. As I've said many times, there's always the choice to not murder children. That's always something you can choose not to do, um, whether or not, you know, deciding to do everything you can to, like, save the person you love. That's a little bit more morally complicated. Um, but there, there are other decisions that seem, seem less so. Um, awesome. That's really fascinating. Uh, I love this idea of action or plot versus character and what seems to be driving, driving the plot. And usually I think modern, we think of like characters, decisions drive the plot and to see an alternate version of how that's understood is really interesting. I'd like to take another break for a moment because then I got to jump into Renaissance. Okay, so we just had Fern walk us through a little crash course in Greek tragedy and how we understand that through version or understanding of a tragic hero. And now me, Julia, will be moving us into the Renaissance or early modern tragedy um, and the tragic hero as it's presented there, keeping in mind that I'm not going to, you know, trace how we get from the Greek tragedy to the Renaissance, but it is, in terms of inspiration, pretty direct. I mean, Renaissance meaning rebirth of these sort of classical ideas. I want to talk about the genre in terms of how the writers at this time understood it and how they understood the tragic hero because there's quite a bit that's in common. I mean, Oedipus is in very much is the blueprint still. I mean, we don't get the Oedipal readings of Hamlet out of nowhere, right? Tragedy in this period is also about inevitability, I think is something very in common with Greek tragedy. Um, 
according to McDonald, um, whose last name, whose first name has been lost in this. So there will be work cited <laughs> eventually. But uh, McDonald writes that a tragedy promotes the impression that hope is futile and that the heroic figure, no matter how magnificent, can never escape the traps that await anyone who inhabits our imperfect and even vicious world. So that quote to me does make it seem a little bit fatalistic. McDonald seems to be arguing that the plays of this time show us these figures that no matter how magnificent as they write, um, live in an imperfect world and as a result kind of fall prey to that. There's a couple of examples of this from this time. Fortune Bras at the end of Hamlet when he walks in a la Donald Glover in Community holding the pizza boxes and everything's on fire. Like um, in Act 5, Scene 2, he he says, This quarry cries on havoc. O proud death, what feast is toward in thine eternal cell that thou so many princes at a shock so bloodily hast struck. So he walks in and basically is like, um, hello? What what happened here that so many noble people are just lying on the floor? Um, like, what is it that death, you know, had against you people that this is the chaos I'm, I'm entering? Um, they've completely overtaken this kingdom and claimed the, claimed the lives of so many noble people. And sort of Fortinbras is there to recenter this uncentered universe and Horatio is there to tell him what exactly happened um to be witness to the chaos that uh that sort of brought the the end to all of these noble people so like in Greek tragedy these characters are noble they are royalty or they are great military figures or they have some sort of nobility to them um there's one exception to this recentering or sort of reordering from chaos to some sort of uh, semblance of order um and I got to bring up Lear because the end of Lear is essentially this bleak, godless universe, which is fascinating. And um, that's one of the things about Shakespeare that is fun. I say fun in quotation marks is that um, occasionally he likes to, it likes to, like he's just around doing this now, um, liked to play with formulas um, in really interesting ways. And that's, I think, part of the reason why he is Shakespeare is the way in which he plays the formula. So in Lear, we get an end of a play in which there isn't a lot of hope, um, even, even among the fact that sort of all of the bad people have been dealt with. Um, we get the end in Act 5, Scene 3. Um, the weight of this sad time we must obey. Speak what we feel, not what we ought to say. The oldest have borne most. We that are young shall never see so much, nor live so long. Um, I believe that's Edgar, who's like, we that are young <laughs> will be lucky if we don't live as long to see as much chaos and pain. Um, and it's just this very sad, tragic ending um, in which, you know, there isn't this sense of hope and reordering um, in contrast to pretty much every other uh, tragedy of this time in which, regardless of the pain and suffering that has occurred, we get confirmation at the end that it will be okay, um, you know, Macduff, is Macduff the king at the end of Macbeth, right? I believe so. Okay, he's king, it's cool, like things got pretty bad there for a while, but everything's gonna be all right, and that's usually how it happens. Although here, we do get an example of how the tragedy can end really pretty terribly, and I think what's interesting here is that we don't necessarily have a classic tragic hero in Lear, um, so that might be the main difference in terms of the genre. So um, we're talking about the tragic hero in specific, um, in an early modern play, according to A.C. Bradley, who was an early 20th century 
critic. Um, he contended that the distinguishing feature of Shakespearean tragedy is not conflict between the tragic hero and someone else, or even between contending groups, but rather conflict within the hero who is a man divided against himself. So we had that callback to like, the real conflict was the friends we made along the way. No, actually, the real conflict was the conflict within ourselves. Um, that seems to be a, a shared assumption by some scholars today about the real conflict in tragedy. And I'm just speaking so fast because I'm so excited because I love this stuff. Um, so I want to talk about these features from Bradley in which he's talking about, okay, what is happening in a tragic play? What are kind of like the um, tropes or uh, things we can uh, call on and be like, okay, this happens to a tragic hero or the tragic hero does this. And then these are kind of the the, the features we can uh, see as happening in all of these plays. So one of them is destruction of the world the hero knows. We've also got shock in the hero's friends and family at their sudden change. And then um, the sort of cause of tragedy, which um, he gives a lot over to emotion. So I want to start with um, destruction of the world the hero knows. So as Bradley uh, explains, an essential part of the hero's experience is the horrified discovery that the world he knows and values, the people he loves and trusts, are changing or have changed utterly. Because as I'm sure you can already tell, like reading these like features, I'm like, Anakin, and then that's also Anakin, and then that third thing also happens to Anakin. And I'm literally <laughs> jotting down, I'm like, okay, and this applies, and yep, this yep, applies. Yep, this was me doing my research where I'm like, oh my gosh, like, it's just, it's it's wild. But um, so yes, the destruction of the world the hero knows. Um, so this idea that the character undergoes this drastic sense of like, I thought things were one way and suddenly, or maybe over sort of a short period of time, it becomes clear that this is not the case. So Hamlet, right, it's obviously the death of his father followed by his mother marrying his uncle, followed by a ghost telling him that his you know, I, your dad was murdered by your uncle. And this is a lot of information. And it's not just that he is sort of deciding whether or not to avenge this murder. It's everything he knows about the world he inhabits has totally changed because now he can't trust his mother. He can't trust his uncle. You know, he can't trust his own sense of like the afterlife and religion mm -hmm. and spirituality. Like, is there a purgatory? Is this a demon? So like his literal sense of the cosmic universe has totally shifted. And his reaction to that is pretty understandable in that context. So specifically, something I think is really interesting is his mother's betrayal changes how he feels about women in general, because he expands the sort of distrust and misogyny he has towards Gertrude for betraying him or betraying his father towards like Ophelia, who has not done anything to wrong him personally. And so I think this is an interesting example of how when the world of the tragic hero collapses, they are they're very very willing to start seeing things in absolutes and like totally change how they feel about people they've known and loved because they feel like the world itself has totally changed. Um, and then in the Spanish tragedy by Thomas Kidd, which is kind of like the foundational revenge play in the early modern world. Um, Geronimo, whose son is murdered in this play, is the knight marshal of Spain. So he's like the law enforcement guy uh, in Spain. And as knight marshal, seeing his son murdered and seeing how justice does not come, his trust in like the kingdom of Spain, it totally collapses because 
what he's been serving, he realizes is totally corrupt and there is no real justice. And so because of that, um, his understanding of like how the world functions collapses because he feels like his job and his life serving this king and this kingdom are just meaningless because there is no real justice in trying to get justice for his son. So those are a couple examples from, so that's destruction of the world the hero knows. This next uh, aspect is shock and the hero's friends and family at their sudden change. So as Bradley explains, in play after play, the extreme and unexpected nature of the change which overtakes the hero is underlined by the bewildered comments of those who know him best. Um, so from the tragic hero, we get their sense of shock and dismay at the things that have changed, but then from their friends and family and the other characters, we get people being like, um, is he okay? What has happened? This is not my beautiful house. This is not my beautiful wife. Like, I thought Hamlet was this noble, intelligent, kind prince, and now he's acting violent and erratic and strange. And what is going on? Um, Claudius describing Hamlet to Rosencrantz and Guildenstern is like, something have you heard of Hamlet's transformation? So I call it Sith, which is always fun because that's not what they mean, but it is in Shakespeare a lot. Sith nor the exterior nor the inward man resembles that it was what it should be more than his father's death that thus hath put him so much from the understanding of himself I cannot dream of. So Claudius is like, hey, do you guys know uh, what is happening uh, with Hamlet? Because this is not my Hamlet. And this is probably a topic for another episode. Um, however, I, I have always found it interesting how Hamlet's grief is policed. Yeah. Um, he gets grief policed, and I wonder if there's anyone else who gets grief policed that we could talk about later. I wonder. Um, yeah, so that's actually a really good segue into the third aspect that Bradley brings up, which is what he says causes the tragedy. Um, and again, there are lots of other scholars who talk about like what causes tragedy, but I thought Bradley was interesting because he focuses on emotion. So he says that, loosely speaking, Ben... Anger and ambition, including pride, a sense of honor, and the desire for glory, and on the other hand, love and grief, are the passions whose overflow bring disaster. And it should be stressed that the first pair are to be seen initially as in as positive a light as the second. So um, he's saying that, like, initially, being angry and being ambitious or having pride and a sense of honor or wanting to, to have glory are not necessarily bad. And generally speaking, are on the same level as something like love and grief. So these characters who are martial figures or princes or nobles or lords should have some sense of glory and honor. That's fine. Or same thing with like love and grief is these are normal emotions, but it's whose overflow bring disaster. So if, if it's an overflow of pride, um, a la Coriolanus or desire for glory, a la Macbeth, it's they reach too far beyond their station or they overdo it. Um, same thing with love and grief, where like Hamlet gets grief policed and as a result is, is not able to, you know, deal with how we would deal with the situation, right? Um, for lots of reasons, but part of that is the quote unquote overflow of emotion that he's seen to be experiencing. Um, Claudius calls it unmanly and is actually, my take is that he would, <laughs> this grief and this sort of moping, quote unquote, is more worrying that violence and anger would be because we have Hamlet's uh, foil, Laertes, who is more like 
the jock, I guess. And Laertes' response to his father being murdered is to like get an army together and like take over <laughs> the country. Um, and that's problematic, but it, he it's not as problematic as like Hamlet just like crying and being sad because Claudius is like, hey, like this, you know, feelings you have about your dad's murder, like this is understandable. You want to avenge him and you're very noble and, you know, just and you want to fight. But um, he's able to convince him to kind of to not do that. Mm -hmm. Um, But he doesn't ever approach Hamlet on the same feeling of like, it's, you know, I understand where you're coming from. And he does that to Laertes because Laertes' response is like, you want to fight me, bro? And Claudius is like, I do not, but I understand. (laughs) I, I get it. Um, and then I also had a note here, Macbeth is overcome with temptation from prophecy, motivated by pride and glory. But this sort of prophecy and this sense of like being the king, what overflows for him is paranoia and fear. Because he realizes <laughs> that he's been, he's been tricked um, and that he doesn't actually understand this prophecy in the way that he thought he did. Um, so yeah, so those three things really kind of were what I wanted to draw out in terms of thinking about the character. Like as a genre, it's about inevitability and fate, but 99% of the time the end recenters the universe correctly, balances the force, so to speak. Um, occasionally we get something uh, super sad like Lear in which there is no balancing, but um, for the most part, that's what we get overall. And then these three features I thought were really kind of crucial especially thinking about Anakin, like the world they know is gone. Everyone around them is like, hey, huh? What? This, mm, this seems worrying. And then it's emotion in the end that is the problem. And this is only one critic's take, but it's the one I wanted to focus on for this reading um, because Renaissance tragedy is a kind of a big, <laughs> kind of a big area of study and I had to choose something, but I just talked there for quite a bit. So I want to hear, I want to hear your initial thoughts burn what are we what are we thinking regarding the Shakespeare so I think that we are definitely going to have to talk about this idea um, of restoring balance mm-hmm. because obviously that is uh, sort of at the forefront of Star Wars mm-hmm. um, and actually I have a quote right here from Charles de Gaulle uh, talking about this idea of what we typically translate as justice but mm-hmm. he argues is um, more complicated than just justice. Okay. Says it, and I don't know how to pronounce the word. I think it's DK. Yeah, it, it, it restores a balance in the world order that has been upset by action beyond the limits of allowable human behavior. And this restoration of order may bring with it even greater suffering than the original crime. Mm, that's really interesting because going into our, our boy, um, our, our, our guy of the week here thinking about um, all of these different factors. But yeah, this idea of um, the end of a Shakespeare tragedy, we get recentering and everything's going to be okay. And like even the prophecy in Macbeth has already built in or allowed for Macbeth himself to be brought to justice or the universe itself to be rebalanced. Um, and this, yeah, that, I'm really intrigued by the sense that it can overdo it. Like you can overbalance um, to the extent that, like, oh man. Where is element seven when you need him? Just to be like, hey, like, would it be possible to have there to be too much light side? So you had brought up um, personal identity as well as like decision versus flaw. And that's not something I really necessarily got into, but I will say as I'm flipping around papers very loudly that um, 
it depends on the character because I feel like again something that makes Shakespeare Shakespeare is like the extent to which <laughs> he makes a revenge tragedy where the main character is like mm, uh, you know for like most of the play and that's that's the problem it's not Hieronimo and the Spanish tragedy being thwarted it's Hamlet just not making a decision and so I think that he's a really interesting foil for like an Anakin character who seems to make decisions very rashly and impulsively and that seems to be part of the problem with him is he doesn't take time to think about those things whereas Hamlet only takes time to think about them and Uh, yeah yeah and I know that this is like perhaps a surface reading a surface level reading of Othello but this was something my students actually brought up when we read Othello recently mm-hmm. that they saw a lot of Anakin Skywalker mm-hmm. in that character in this uh rush to take action when it seems that there is an injustice um without fully contemplating the option right well let's let's start talking about Anakin because um it's I when we discussed this topic, first of all, it was very clear that like this was going to be topic number one because it just was immediately, we were like, no, no, Anakin Skywalker, Tragic Hero, episode number one of the Star Wars English Class podcast. Um, and it's interesting to me that we've been exclusively referring to him as Anakin mm-hmm. um, because Anakin is the tragic hero. Darth Vader is like, question mark? Like, I don't know where Darth Vader fits in this at the moment. So we'll we're going to put... Darth Vader, we're going to put him on the shelf for a second. Just stay there for a second. Are you okay with that? Cool. Um, And talking about Anakin in terms of his story. So he starts out with a a seemingly mystical origin, which to me seems way more Greek than Renaissance, right? Mm -hmm. Like his origin is spiritual and mystical. and he's born into slavery, which is interesting because you mentioned earlier this idea of reversal and recognition. And um, so let's just start with Anakin as we meet him chronologically in The Phantom Menace. Um, what are our thoughts in terms of where baby Anakin fits into all of this? Well, it's interesting that you bring up uh, reversal and recognition because, you know, according to Aristotle, a tragic hero cannot fall from or cannot rise from misfortune to good fortune it has Mm -hmm. to be the reverse good fortune to misfortune and yet what we seem to see in the phantom menace is a reversal of fortune from misfortune to good fortune right Right. he is freed from slavery he becomes or he is going to be trained to become a jedi knight um, which is as far as we understand it in this world like a pretty revered position Mm -hmm. Um, and obviously we see different characters approach that in different ways. Um, but in general, well-respected, like he gains status. Right. Um, and yet he comes from these like very humble origins. Right. And I'm thinking a lot about this sense of like reversal and recognition. We're talking about reversal of fortune. It's clearly a reversal materially in terms of like mm. being literally enslaved and having no control over your future to seemingly having the whole galaxy opened up to you. Um, and yet we know that that's not true and that what he's giving up is love and compassion and attachment, um, which are going to be part of the problem. And so 
I think it's fascinating to think about the seeds of like, <laughs> what's going to be the problem? Is it here? I don't know that it can be really a choice. I don't think a nine-year-old is in a position here to, to decide to stay with his mother who he loves or get to like leave and become a Jedi. Like, I, I don't know how you make the right decision at nine years old. Right, exactly. And this is something um, because as you know, I'm, I'm quite the Jedi apologist. Um, <laughs> and, and I have talked on TikTok before about how, well, you know, no one is forcing children to become Jedi um, like it is ostensibly a choice and yet we have to talk about the idea of what essentially amounts to informed consent right like how can you actually make this decision how can you actually consent when we're talking about such a drastic shift in Mm -hmm. material circumstances right and how young most of them are and Anakin is older than most and it's it, it doesn't make it any easier in fact that makes it harder and that's why the jedi council is like he is way too old he is never gonna forget his mother he's not gonna forget what it feels like to have someone he loves um informed consent <laughs> for jedi is like i because i agree that they're not kidnapping children which is like the phrase people like to use that's not what they're doing but at the same time it's very to me it feels very biblical of like giving your child to the temple to be a prophet where like it's clear they have this gift and it's a great honor, but they are still children. And so to what extent is that really a decision that they or their family can make? Um, And we learn more about Qui-Gon in Claudia Gray's book, Master and Apprentice regarding prophecy and um, get the sense that prophecy always comes true. And so um, again, like, (laughs) seems like Anakin has this fatedness um, that becomes clear in The Phantom Menace in which we learn that there is such thing as a chosen one prophecy. Um, And we don't know exactly what that means, but it seems significant. And it seems like Qui-Gon is at least convinced that he is the chosen one and that there is no, there is no if, ands, or buts about that. Right. There's no ambiguity there. And in a way, I think that makes it so for Anakin because Anakin's introduction to this world is Qui-Gon mm-hmm. um, and like there's definitely a lot to talk about in regards to that relationship um, and I, not to invoke the name Harry Potter here <laughs> on this um, this this platform but it reminds me of the prophecy in Harry Potter mm-hmm. that it could have been Harry or Neville, but because Voldemort chose Harry, that made it so, <clears throat> that made it true, um, or it made right. it that Harry was the chosen one, um, but it could have gone either way. And so, like, I think if not on a m- mythical level, on a personal level, Qui-Gon introducing Anakin to this world in this way made the chosen one prophecy true to Anakin. Right. right. And that's not something that is really explored. It's explored a little bit in the Clone Wars, like in the Mortis arc, we get mm-hmm. some recognition that Anakin's aware of the prophecy of himself um, and sort of where he fits into that, um, which doesn't happen in, in the prequels at all, which I, I, I guess it makes sense. But it's also kind of like, you know, not to bring in Harry Potter again, he knows he's the chosen one and he, that weighs heavily on him. 
Um, and Anakin, other than, unless I'm missing some of the prequel, seems to be less conscious of, that doesn't seem to actually occur to him as much. Um, mm. Whereas like Oedipus, it's like, that's the whole thing is like, he, he's trying to avoid this prophecy and Anakin certainly takes actions to avoid certain visions and, and specifically visions of Padme's death. But in terms of being the chosen one, it's not clear that he knows what that means for him. Mm -hmm. um, and that's fascinating to me because we get this sense of avoiding prophecy leading to that thing coming true, but not necessarily in the way that we would expect it in a traditional kind of tragedy. Mm -hmm. um, okay, Phantom Menace. Is there anything else Anakin-wise that I want to say about the Phantom Menace? I'm trying to think. I mean, I do want to talk about Galaxy's Oldest Padawan, Obi-Wan Kenobi, but that's, that's irrelevant. In that case, let's cut, I guess we can kind of jump into to Attack of the Clones, which I know you love. Um, I do love this movie as well, um, mostly because I can imagine a cut of it in which Anakin is not in it. And it's just Obi-Wan's story, and he's just investigating the clones, and um, that's fun for me personally. But, um, you know, we get the first sort of uh, rumblings of, of trouble on the horizon um, regarding some of these issues, particularly, I would say, the overflow of emotion, at least from what I was discussing. Um, and some of the choices that he makes along his path that turn out to be uh, d problematic. So I guess that's kind of what my mind is like, the emotional instability he's dealing with, as well as how that emotional instability leads him to, say, um, murder an entire tribe of indigenous people. <laughs> right. I think we... Okay. I don't know to what extent we want to talk about like authorial intent on this podcast. Oh, George. Oh, oh God. He heard us. He's already here. George. <laughs> oh, no. George, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm sure. I mean, like, that could be an episode all on its own. Um, but I think there was an attempt on the part of George Lucas at all to create here a good but flawed character. Mm. I think that the Clone Wars does a much better job of developing <clears throat> that. Right. Um, I also am not, you know, and and I think we have slightly different or maybe very different um, feelings about Anakin Skywalker. I I really like him as a character. Sure. And like I I in many ways empathize with him. Attack of the Clones does not help that, though. Like, <laughs> Attack of the Clones is sort of... Attack of the Clones is when you're trying to find a good picture of this person that you're talking to or, like, might be dating, and you're scrolling through their social media, and you're like, uh, mm, and you're trying to find a good one, and then your friend sees Attack of the Clones, and they're like, that's, that's the person you're interested in? And you're like, but this is a really bad picture. That's yes. what Attack of the Clones is for Andy. Yes, that is exactly right. I would completely agree with that assessment. <laughs> Um, but we we see a few things at play here um, because we see this introduction of a good but flawed person um, and we see the beginnings of um, prophecy influencing Anakin's actions, specifically the prophecy or the vision he has about his mother mm -hmm. who is suffering. Um, he acts on that he right. goes to Tatooine um and I think says pretty directly that he to, to Padme you know I'm sorry I don't have a choice right um 
But things play out very differently with this vision than the one he has in Revenge of the Sith, which I'm sure we'll get to soon. Right. Yeah. So I think it's interesting how Anakin is presented as he is, um, he is, I mean, if we think of the knight literally as like a noble figure, like the the knight is a heroic character who protects and serves. And that's definitely the the model that we're working with here. Um, And it's very almost like medieval romance um, in that he is immediately, like the first time we see adult Anakin, he is in love with this, this noble lady. And that sort of emotion and attachment is informing this uh, encounter he's going to have and this mission he's going to have, which I think does draw very much with the relationship with his mother. And if we're thinking about fatal flaws, if I have to, had to give Anakin one that was like an actual character trait, it would be it would be attachment. It would mm-hmm. be un, being unwilling to let go. Um, that being said, I think it's hard for us to consider that as a as a flaw from the perspective of like us. From the perspective of the Jedi, it is absolutely a flaw. But um, for most human people, it's like that's just how, you know, we work as social creatures. Um, But I I do think that it is a case of uh, something that is not a flaw in moderation, um, but is in excess. And so that ties into what you were saying about Renaissance tragedy, and then also something that um, I I didn't talk about before, but I sort of have the background radiation Mm -hmm. knowledge of this from like the classical mythology course I took in when I was 19. Um, But there is a a sense in much of Greek mythology that moderation is key mm. and that the middle path is mm-hmm. the path to be on. And we certainly don't see that with Anakin. No, um, I'm thinking of like immediately I'm just thinking of like Narcissus where like it's good to have, you know, you know, trust in your abilities and, you know, think you're a valuable person and staring at your own reflection for all time is not a good example of that's not moderation that's right. you know excessive vanity um and so excess comes up everywhere hamlet is excessively grief-stricken whether or not he would be categorized as such today um and anakin is, is he's also 19 years old mm-hmm. and you know the older i get and the more i begin calling characters my actual literal children the more I'm like, oh my gosh, this is in many ways a child who is emotionally not, <laughs> brain brain not done cooking. Anakin's brain is not done cooking and he's being expected to make decisions and encounter things that he's not ready for. Um, and that doesn't, he's just put in positions where even if he had the right information, I don't know that he would be capable of making the right decision. And that goes back to like fate. And I just, I want him to be able to make the right decision. So thinking about the dreams he has about Shmi, his mother, um, hashtag justice for Shmi. Um, I rewatched the scene last night where he actually goes to find her. And she says before she dies that I am complete. Um, And that line really struck me because I didn't remember her saying basically that seeing her son again was what she needed almost in terms of like, permission to die and like to to pass on from the suffering she experienced um so let's talk about Shmi and Anakin in Attack of the Clones because this seems to be like the first step towards (laughs) the Darth Vader essentially yeah um and you know an idea that we see in the new High Republic books that are coming out is that the path to the dark side is one of like 
intentional decisions. Mm -hmm. um, and this is the first intentional decision that Anakin makes on that mm -hmm. path. Um, but I think that you're, yeah, it's, it's so interesting to bring up um, this idea that Anakin arrived at the right time. Anakin, Shmi needed to see Anakin one last time before she could die. He shows up exactly at the moment she sort of needs him to be mm -hmm. there and I can see how if this is the framework you have for understanding visions mm. um, this is the one experience you've had with them you could make decisions like the ones he makes in Revenge of the Sith right um, because I think a lot of his guilt stems from this idea that he he knew she was suffering before that and waited his inaction mm -hmm. sort of caused her death right um, yeah so you're saying that if hamlet got a second chance at it he would become whatever the 16th century danish equivalent of a sith lord is i'm saying it is not outside of the realm <laughs> of possibility right because a lot of characters who undergo the type of things that he undergoes anakin don't get a second chance um and he learns from this and what he learns is he needs to be more impulsive um or at least that's the lesson he takes I would agree with you that he feels like I waited too long um and yeah and then from there he doesn't just lament the loss of his mother he immediately turns that into <laughs> into a stabby stabby slicey slicey um which he regrets. And I, I say regrets because it's clearly when he's speaking to Padme um, later and describing it, he's so overcome with emotion. He's very, uh, the way he describes it, he doesn't feel like he has any control. At least my reading of that scene, he's describing mm -hmm. it as like, I had no choice. I was completely overcome with emotion and with rage. And it, it was the only thing I could do. He's not taking necessarily responsibility for what happened in the way that I don't know. What is your take on like how he's describing that to Padme? I mean, I think a core aspect of Anakin's internal conflict is feeling a lack of control, both over himself and his own actions. Um, and also, I guess, like, both internally and also from external forces. He had no control over his life when he was a slave on Tatooine. He feels the sense that, and, and it is accurate in many ways, that he does not have control over his own life mm -hmm. as a Jedi. And he does not have control over his own behaviors and his own emotions. So I think you're, you're exactly right to like pinpoint that as a huge part of the emotional burden he's feeling in that moment. He doesn't feel like he has agency. And I think that's something that really does connect him to a tragic hero is they in many ways feel like they have to make a decision or they have to do something or they're being compelled to or um, they're not sure that they are making the right decision and that questioning of, of their fate and what the right thing to do is is you know like Macbeth goes to his wife and is like hey like he writes a letter to her like this I had this encounter with these witches and they say I'm going to be king like your thoughts and he's questioning it and he's unsure he gets reassurance and um 
then later they realize like, oh no, this is actually, uh, <laughs> we are not, we are not prepared because we're, we totally don't have any control. Yeah. Um, I actually really quickly have a quote on that. Absolutely. Exact, uh, yeah. In terms of Greek tragedy, um, this is from the, the evolution of the tragic hero by George Boas. Uh, the tragic hero is made to feel himself caught in a situation over which he has little control, but in which he must make some decision, however futile, he must choose and cannot choose well. Absolutely. That's that's it. That's the Star War. We did it. <laughs> we solved Star Wars. We did. We solved the Star Wars. We said, hey, these, these poor people don't have any choice, and yet they must decide. Um, the idea of having no good choice. I mean there's a lot more we can talk about but this is already going to be like 17 hours long um <laughs> moving into revenge of the sith which is the purest distillation of tragedy um in my mind other than maul who we will get to at some point my sweet sweet shakespearean character who popped who somehow popped out of shakespeare's brain and ended up in the 21st century it's truly remarkable but um other than that revenge of the sith is if we look at the arc and like the plot of this story, this is a it is a tragedy. That is the what this is, and it's just incredible from that point of view. At least from my brain, like if I had to plot out a tragedy for my students, I'd be like, "Here is Revenge of the Sith. It is a tragedy." <laughs> yeah, and so um, when I made a video about Anakin as a tragic hero what feels like years ago now, but it was like a few weeks. Um, <laughs> people were asking and I think you might have been one of them um how I saw did I see Revenge of the Sith as like a Greek tragedy or a Renaissance tragedy that was probably me yes and um for me the the fact that um it, okay I'm gonna say a word and I don't mean it in the Freudian sense so just Got remove it. that from your main your brain okay Revenge of the Sith feels Oedipal to me. Like it, okay. it seems to track with the story of Oedipus. Mm -hmm. um, the sense that there is a prophecy, there is a vision. Um, and in working against that prophecy, you bring it about. And the question remains, would this have happened anyway, even if you mm -hmm. did nothing? Right. Um, or was it your own actions that brought this about? Yeah, you have done that yourself. <laughs> as Obi-Wan says like yeah. you're saying this thing happened and from my point of view I can only speak in I can only speak in in memes now since we're in Revenge of the Sith tragedy um you know you've all of this you feared like this is all your own actions um I didn't mention an attack of the clones but again in Revenge of the Sith we get Anakin blaming Obi-Wan for everything like it's all Obi-Wan's fault and it's like for what um like I get where he's coming from but he's also my number one guy and so I feel a little bad for him mm -hmm. and then later when they're having their confrontation on Mustafar Anakin is, is again like you brought Obi-Wan here to kill me you know that's it's all projection and um I'm curious where a character like that fits because I always as I've, we've mentioned Obi-Wan and Horatio are kind of they're the witness character who's there mm -hmm. to you know to tell the story of what happened to this this figure, to tell Fortinbras who Hamlet was, or to tell Luke who his father was, however inaccurately. Um, and so there we're sort of getting a lot of this from 
their perspective or when we first watch a new hope or when star wars first came out we only had the skewed perspective of obi-wan to describe what we see happening to anakin so i wanted to bring that up as well as like point of view in terms of who we get who we get um this information from but you mentioned in revenge of the sith there's this vision there's this prophecy um and you said it was oedipal and he's trying to run from it um any other elaboration on like he does try to reach out to people at times he chooses the wrong person i think to talk about it with um so thoughts about like how he's struggling with the prophecy because he does that we do actually see him struggle with it here in this film yeah so that's actually not something i i had not thought about that before um and i think it complicates things right so the decision to trust palpatine mm-hmm. for me would be this this hamartia right this yeah. decision um this mistake that is made but you're right, before that, like, Anakin does try other paths to prevent this prophecy from coming about. And mm-hmm. they are all dead ends. Mm-hmm. They don't give him what he needs. So I, I haven't thought about that a lot. So I'd be very interested to hear your perspective. Yeah, it's, that's something that I think, you know, obviously, George Lucas isn't just repeating a great tragedy or repeating a Shakespearean tragedy. Everyone who sort of creates and adapts is adding their own their own take on things um and that's something that i see anakin trying to do is and one of the things the clone wars does really well is it shows him making attempt to whether it's regarding padme or, or anything like trying to do the right thing and you see the extent to which he's already made some pretty bad decisions like trusting palpatine that are you know people always say like once he was in palpatine's pocket there was really no hope and potentially there's nothing he can do um at that point which i don't love because i would love anakin to be able to be strong enough to resist him mm-hmm. um but it's it's just it's something that you know hamlet also doesn't confide in, doesn't confide in people um and there's this video game elsinore which is an adaptation where you can actually convince him to confide in people and it like totally changes the plot of hamlet because once hamlet like feels seen and understood by like Ophelia or literally anyone he like it totally changes things because he has someone who understands him and so I guess that video game has helped me understand the extent to which feeling alone or feeling isolated um becomes an echo chamber for like your own worst (laughs) self um and that can really because we don't really have like a um Palpatine character in well, we have Richard III and we have other sort of villains, but um, this sort of archetype seems much more modern, but I guess we'd have to dig into that <laughs> even more. There, yeah, that that's interesting, the role of isolation in all of this, because we've talked before about um, how Obi-Wan did not know how to be the best teacher and the best right. mentor to Anakin, and there's that moment in the Clone Wars where Anakin realizes that Obi-Wan has experienced some similar things in terms of attachment um, Mm -hmm. and that conversation sort of just comes to an end and Mm -hmm. um, how different would things be if and I I personally feel they would be very different if 
all this time Anakin had seen Obi-Wan as someone who understood him mm-hmm. and who recognized his conflicts and and uh just his experiences instead of this perfect Jedi mm-hmm. in heavy air quotes um who who he can't relate to right right it seems like this the sense of being a tragic hero is one of isolation mm-hmm. where if you the heavy burden there's there's a burden on the character I think maybe is how how I'm kind of understanding it and if they feel they must shoulder that burden alone that's gonna they're gonna collapse under the weight of it um and for whatever reason are unable to to connect with other people and something that I'm thinking now is so one of the parts uh points I brought up with Bradley is this sense that the characters around the tragic hero are also unsure how to how to deal with the changes they're seeing um, in this person that they love or this person that they know. And so thinking about Revenge of the Sith is where I see this most, where you have people like Obi-Wan and Padme who are just at a loss for how to help Anakin. And it's not just Anakin being unable to connect with people, it's the people around him who don't know what to do, or in Padme's case, who are just being straight up shut down. Um, and you brought up Othello earlier, and this is where this is where Othello comes in, right? Is 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 Padme, and and Anakin, especially on Mustafar. But um, what are we thinking about the people around Anakin? Because I'm thinking of like everybody knows something is wrong, and yet <laughs> no one is doing anything. Like, <laughs> oh, and so like Othello, Anakin puts his faith in the wrong person mm-hmm. because Palpatine is the person he confides in. Oh my gosh, Palpatine is Iago. What, we're yeah. just sitting here like, oh my gosh, there isn't a character like Palpatine. No, 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 there is a character because Iago, like, what is his problem? Like, we don't ever get a sense of like, why are you like this? Like, he, he gives us this like, oh, I was passed over for a promotion. And we're like, no, 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 this seems to be uh, pathological. What's, um, what's the quote? Like, mot- motiveless, uh, malicious, I'm, I'm I don't remember the line, but right. Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna look it up while we're while we're talking here. Yeah. Um. But yeah, th- this almost puppet master figure, this manipulative figure, who in both the case of Othello and Anakin, the tragic hero puts his faith in the wrong person and denies the help and the and refuses to trust. The people he really should be trusting all along. Um, I found it. It's it's a uh, Coleridge, uh, motiveless malignity. Yes, his keen I, sense of intellectual superiority and love of exerting power. That's that's him. Good job, Coleridge. You've done it. That, yeah, he put yeah he puts his trust in the wrong person, and it. You know, we don't get a sense of prophecy in Othello what we do get I think is is relatable is just that of like a good person who who has flaws like anyone else and he Othello is sort of put into position by Iago and by people around him to act on his worst impulses um and obviously it's problematic for lots of reasons there's assumptions made about him because of his race and because of his experience as a soldier and um etc and so like with Anakin, or if we're relating it to Anakin, this idea that people can be inherently troubled or problematic and you can goad that out of them is, is a whole other uh, bay of cats. Um, 
so we, to speak. Yeah. Well, we also see because Revenge of the Sith is where Anakin really becomes at the beginning of the film, at least, uh, this, you know, hero, this man of great reputation, mm-hmm. right? He is a war hero. He is the hero of the Clone Wars. He is a Jedi Knight. He is given a place on the council, even though he's not given the rank. <laughs> right. Um, but I think, and I think Anakin is aware of this and maybe this is like where some of the tension comes from. Um, when he is denied the rank of master. This is outrageous. <laughs> like Othello, that status is conditional. Like, mm-hmm. yeah, Othello's rank, his status, the respect that is given to him is extraordinarily conditional because he is an outsider because mm-hmm. of his race. Um, and I think Anakin feels that same anxiety and tension that yes, he has this reputation, but it can be taken away. Absolutely. Yeah, that's a really great, that's a really great connection between them. I hadn't considered of like, unlike, well, and it's not true though. I was going to say unlike Obi-Wan, but Obi-Wan's whole life is conditional. Mm-hmm. And like, I think, again, that's something that they don't talk about is Anakin seems to assume that Obi-Wan has had it easy in terms of success and like, and it's it's not true, but he doesn't know that. He doesn't know how conditional Obi-Wan's success is. Um, and that's that's truly part of the problem. But yeah, Anakin is is in many ways an outsider. And there are people on the council who seem to like Mace gets a lot of uh gets a lot of crap from people um because he uh, doesn't like Anakin, and that's fair, but he's also he's also right um in that he sees he sees the danger. Um and as a result, makes his acceptance of Anakin conditional, um, whether or not that's based on prejudice information or not, right? Like, we don't know the extent to which Mace is legitimately concerned or the extent to which he is prejudiced because of age or prophecy or condition. But that's um, that's an amazing point. And now I will be going back to Rinsith and being like, hmm, how, how much of this is Anakin being given acceptance, but only if he acts in the right way? Um, and so then he does the thing he's not supposed to do, um, which he got married at the end of Attack of the Clones. Um, and now he has this thing that is more important to him than the thing that is supposed to be the center of his world, which is conditional. And if he thinks that his relationship with Padme is unconditional, that's great. But then once that starts to feel conditional, it's like, oh no, here we go. We see his world shifting. Padme and that scene on Mustafar, I had written in in the outline, I really want to talk about that scene where he is confronted by Padme and then by Obi-Wan before they actually get into their duel, because it's referred to as, what are they, is it Battle of Heroes? Is that kind yeah. of what people refer to as that fight, right? Um, but he does the thing, which tragic heroes do, which I hate, which is physical violence against women they supposedly love. Um, and that is the thing that for me with Hamlet always breaks me in any production because the text itself does not suggest physical violence and yet we get it in almost every adaptation or stage production and it's curious to me well it's not curious I I know why they're doing it but um we get that here and we also get suspicion and fear well actually he does this multiple times with Obi-Wan where I don't they ended up either cutting this out of the movie or going in a different direction but I am convinced that there was a version of Revenge of the Sith in which Anakin was suspicious that Obi-Wan and Padme were 
uh, together behind his back. Like I, I think, like I've heard that in the original version of the story, yeah, yeah. version of yeah. And I personally think that that's really compelling, and it's also very classic Shakespeare. So I'm like, of course, it's Cassio and um, and Desdemona, right? It's it's more traditional. So I just want to talk a little bit about Padme and and specifically that scene on Mustafa or anything else relating to Padme. You kind of wanted to to bring up. I think we're, um, and this this might be in, I don't think an unpopular opinion here between the two of us, but maybe more broadly mm-hmm. speaking, <laughs> an unpopular opinion. It, I think that the the narrative we got surrounding Padme was she just was not given what was owed to her. No. Um, and I know there were you know early versions of the script where she goes on to form the rebellion um and and she lives longer than she doesn't die in childbirth um and what is that a knife no (laughs) (laughs) um and and so it's I don't know I have that in the back of my head of like what could have been and what Mm -hmm. we got instead was what could have had it all (laughs) we really could have and we didn't get that um so I I I don't know how, for me personally, Padme fits into all of this um, beyond like what you said about, yeah, the, the, this tendency for tragic heroes, for their downfall to in some way be, um, I guess, like made visual by their actions against women, yeah. like their violence towards women. I've taken a mild sort of left turn here into this, but um, no, but we do also see that in Othello, uh, mm-hmm. you know, Desdemona's last act on this earth is to try and uh, to say that she killed herself so that Othello is yeah, yeah. not seen as guilty. Like he, she's still caring for him after he strangles her. Yeah, she is strangled is un is un undies. Yes. <laughs> to say it's fine and then dies again, which is essentially what happens to Padme. And it's like, hey, hello? But the things that, that Anakin is is sort of yelling uh, or sort of accusing um, really goes back in my mind to like, he believes his whole world is, is destroyed. He has no trust in the institutions and the people that once meant everything to him, the Jedi, uh, his relationship with Obi-Wan, his relationship with Padme. And so once all those bridges are burned, like his only remaining tether is, is Palpatine. And what does he do? Like, what does he do when he's in that position? Um, and I think, yeah, to me, that's that sort of final confrontation is, is all about destruction of the world that Anakin thought he lived in, um, which is funny because he is essentially the cause of that final destruction of the jedi and of his relationships yeah all right um because this will go on forever i do want to briefly talk about the important part that you've referenced which is um recognition and suffering and sort of the end of the tragedy because i think we end up with very different ending and a greek tragedy and a renaissance tragedy and then if we were to see return of the jedi as the end the return of Anakin and then the end of his story, like where, where does this fit regarding the tragic hero? So I've been struggling with this. Um, if I had to pinpoint a moment of recognition for Anakin, who has become Darth Vader at this point, mm-hmm. it is when he is told Padme is dead. Um, yeah. 
and that the thing he was working to prevent he brought about mm -hmm. um and you know he, he screams no you don't <laughs> become is... the very thing you sought to destroy i'm sorry i can't i can only speak in in revenge of the sith memes when i'm in close contact with it it's necessary it, yeah. it is i will do what i must shared vocabulary that we have <laughs> um but yeah, so I, I think that that is a moment of recognition. And then I think the suffering is the 20 years mm. or 22 years he spends as Darth Vader, um, which I think is explored in uh, graphic detail in some of the Darth Vader comics. Mm. Yeah. Um, but it, it really is just two straight decades of suffering. He is straight up not having a good time. No. <laughs> um. So yeah, that totally, like if it were to end there, and this is, I guess, kind of what I mean when I say Revenge of the Sith is a pure tragedy, is like, we do get the like, you know, the babies and then the twin sons and like, we know that it'll be okay. But like, you could just end with him yelling no, and it would be a complete story. It would be a sad story. It would be a very, it would be Lear. It would be a Lear ending. And that would be cool because I uh, love pain, apparently. But that's not what we get because we already know the way in which speaking of episodes continuity storytelling uh non-chronological storytelling that will have to be something we discuss yes. but um it's not just we know that like luke and leia are going to see this is uh darth Chaco on tiktok frequently mentions who people see as the main character of star wars based on when they were born and how they were introduced to star wars and because of my age at least to me anakin is kind of the main character and to many people it's luke and so i imagine that seeing the prequels and seeing the end of revenge of the sith you're either thinking luke is going to be the hero and then you know anakin sort of makes his decision but for many people i'm thinking because i return of the jedi is my favorite star wars film i'm thinking of you were right about me and like this additional moment of recognition and reversal mm -hmm. but it's the opposite so what do we do with the return of Anakin in Return of the Jedi? I think it's so Star Wars. Um, <laughs> it's just pure Star Wars. It's it's pure Star Wars, um, and I think it 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 takes it takes us from tragedy to a completely different genre. And I think it fits within the realm of like what I have seen described as hope punk. Um, mm -hmm. But I think if the prequels are tragedy the original trilogy is something else yeah is epic i guess yeah yeah epic yeah, right? yeah um and yeah so it is it is another reversal it is another recognition in the opposite direction yeah but instead of suffering we get hope like is that like what's the opposite of acceptance is, is the opposite of suffering acceptance like um but I like could literally just like start crying right now because I, I love, I just think it's such a, we, again, talking about like what balance means and what Star Wars fans like to argue about, but the really radical thing about that hope punk, I think makes sense. The really radical thing about it is it's not, it's the ability for Darth Vader to become Anakin for just long enough to do what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. Like it's not this um, intense, redemption arc it's not that's not the story to me i read that as having just enough moment of clarity to be like you know what no like the recognition is i cannot let this 
man kill my son and we could get into the lore of like and then he's going to take over his body blah, blah. Like, i don't want to talk about that right now i want to talk about <laughs> a man seeing his son being murdered and realizing he has the power to do something about it and in a split second decision doing what he can to stop that and i love that he he gets to be a hero and it's not because it's just one moment and like the idea that you can still do the right thing after years and years of being a quote-unquote monster is really is very radical in my yeah. mind radical hope mm-hmm. like yeah um and it i mean yeah there's the conversation to be had here about balance and i don't just mean balance in the force mm-hmm. i mean balance in the way that that the the greeks were talking about balance right, right. and justice um and I think Luke and Leia both provide a little of that, although not in this case, not in the way the Greeks were talking about it, right? Not as like retribution, um, but instead as this inverse, this this second reversal. Mm -hmm. Reversal of fortune, but good this time. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's a really great ending and unexpected. at least in the case of how you might expect that story to end. Final thoughts on on Anakin, on Tragic Heroes, on Iago Palpatine, which is going to be just the only thing I can think about for the foreseeable future. The new conspiracy theory. Iago and Palpatine are the same person. People keep asking me, Julia, what will happen if Corky Kenobi ever becomes canon? What will you do? Because that's what you do on your TikTok. And I'm like, well, I have to find something else. So maybe this is it. I feel like that is a very good option. I will move into Iago Palpatine trutherism. Yes. My final thoughts are that uh, if we set out to answer the question of whether or not Anakin Skywalker is a tragic hero, which I don't know if that is what we set out to do. Yeah, I mean, it was. (laughs) It was the topic of discussion. I think he is a tragic hero. I would agree with that. He is a tragic hero. He is perhaps not, he is a, I want to say like perhaps not the archetypal. No. Tragic hero. He is a, um, he exists because of tragic heroes in the past. Okay. He's made up of composite parts of them, but he's also, you know, a modern American film hero. He's also, a George Lucas brain creation of like Americana and like there's a lot more there, but he is there's a lot of there's a lot of a uh, tragic hero in the in the soup that is Anakin Skywalker. Yeah, yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I wrote an essay about something like that. Oh once yeah, upon a time for about a... soup. Yeah, about <laughs> soup. <laughs> no, about Anakin Skywalker sort of like inheriting this uh, tradition of like American villains yeah um but also soup also soup Mm, i think i think we're both just very hungry because this has been going on for over two hours now final thoughts other than i've said uh iago palpatine um thinking about kind of this podcast and what i think it i what i want it to be i don't know you're feeling like to me it's really like i always think about these things when i'm engaged in 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 the star war um like what parts of it are pieces of things we, we've already recognized and like how can understanding the tragic hero 
give me a new perspective on Anakin. And as someone who's not naturally inclined to love his character, seeing a scholar say, hey, in A Tragic Hero, we have the destruction of the world the hero knows, we have their family's shock, we have this sort of overflow of emotion as tragedy. And I'm like, well, I like all those things in characters. And so maybe I can give a new, take another look at this and see beyond the memification or like this sort of, it's, it's so ubiquitous in our culture to really analyze it on a different level and learn more about it. And that's, you know, and also just think about being able to learn about something like tragedy through Star Wars, because sometimes whatever you're assigned in your school, like your classroom, you don't, you don't click with, but maybe you click with Star Wars and maybe that can be a window into understanding this stuff. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, at its best, an English classroom is about um, learning to pay attention in new ways. Mm -hmm. Um, and and finding new meaning through Absolutely. the careful attention you pay uh, to to the the things you are studying, and I think that's exactly what I I definitely want to do here with Star Wars. Pay pay a certain kind of attention. That was a lot of fun, and yeah. I'm very much looking forward to seeing to editing this and seeing and seeing where everything's go where everything goes. I want to thank everyone who's made it all the way to the end of the first episode of Star Wars English class. Um, we have a whole bunch of different episodes, I, episode ideas out there. Um, but if you have ideas, um, we should probably say where people can find us. Because as of right now, I'm thinking like the only way to contact me in this realm is, is TikTok. So on TikTok, I'm at JuliaChristine77. Um, you can ask me questions on there. You can suggest episode ideas, etc. Or if you want to join the, the cult of Corky Kenobi, you can also become become a member and help us achieve our, our dream. But at JuliaChristine77, um, we'll probably have social medias at some point, but if you have any like burning questions about this episode or you have ideas for other episodes, you can reach out there. And then Fern, where can folks find you? You can find me on TikTok at FernAMG. Um, I do a lot of this, honestly, um, but in little bits, bite-sized bits, um, talking about Star Wars from various humanities perspectives. So. Um, in addition to literature, also um, history and religious studies and a sprinkling of philosophy, but I don't know a whole, a whole ton about that. Um, but yeah, you, same, you can ask me questions um, and suggest topics, and I would love to hear from you. But you do have to put up with my Jedi apologism. I actually haven't thought about how I want to end this. It feels kind of cheesy to say, may the force be with you, but that's what I want to say. I think it's necessary. I think we need to okay. say it. All right, Fern, may the force be with you. May the force be with you, Julia. Julia.